you always got to challenge your own expectations first, right? And then challenge others. When have I done that lately? And then finally, what risks am I taking? And you only know if you're taking risks if you're failing. host and Emily Ken. And before we start with today's show, please remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. Today, my special guest is Frank Wagner. Frank is the founding partner of Marshall Goldsmith Stakeholder Centered Coaching. He received his PhD in the mid-70s, and his speciality is leadership behavior with an emphasis on commitment, teamwork, and influence across organizational boundaries. Welcome to the Mindset Zone, Frank. Well, thank you, Anna. It is always a pleasure to spend any time with you. Oh, and it's truly an honor to um, uh, the interactions and they had the privilege of meeting you in person for several years and um, learning from you and from your amazing personal and professional life stories. And one of the things that we are speaking in the other day that uh, I really have, I have to have you in the podcast, because you, for decades, since the late 70s, early 80s, you are working with the leadership, with organization, with training, in, and you are describing that in the 80s, we, you were working with Marshall Goldsmith, uh, uh, doing a lot of training, situational leadership in IBM. And you were invited to start a training called the Excellent Manager, correct? Yes, that's the name IBM gave us to design a program for them. And from all that work, you wrote your book, The Power of Total Commitment, A Leader's Le Legacy, that, uh, that is uh, now in the second edition of the book uh, with four words of uh, Ken Blanchard, the, uh, the first edition, and Kim Kozos, the second one, correct? Correct. Yes. So good. <laughs> uh, is that just that uh, makes the, the, the book um, to another level. But tell me why about that initial work and why this focus on commitment? Marshall and I had been well-versed in a number of leadership frameworks. And again, our first professional work was with this program you already mentioned called Situational Leadership. And then um, when we got involved with this, this work for IBM Corporation, they wanted us to study excellent managers and to create a training around excellent managers. So they gave us, we said, great, give us your best managers so we can study them. And, and it was so interesting that we also included other clients, like at the time, Citibank, Coca-Cola, Dun & Bradstreet. And we put together a training, which was very, very well received. And all we did was study excellent managers and captured what they did. Our challenge was, they're all different. I mean, they talked differently. They they were of different ages. They were both men and women. 
you know, what is the common ground about these people? And obviously we were focusing on what they did and their behavior. And we were still struggling with how do we organize it? And what we finally came to realize was, you know, the common ground. Well, first of all, I will say one of the things that was very common among all of them is every one of them had extremely high integrity and they were humble. I mean, mm-hmm. they didn't come across like, yes, I'm I'm so great. I'm, you know, a great manager, a great leader. No, that wasn't the way they were at all. What we came to, to, to organize all of our learnings from them was around commitments. And it was commitment to what? You know, whether it was commitment to their customer base, whether it was a commitment to their own organization, whether it was commitment to driving results and, and achieving success, was a commitment to their people and their teams they worked with. And, and the one that was interesting that was our last one we added was they also had a commitment to themselves. Now, were these perfect people? No. Yet they really were long-term successful leaders and managers. And tell us, because I, I really like that, because the, uh, the commitment to the customers, to the organizations, to the people and results. I think, uh, uh, and to values is not unique. Uh, many other people speak about that, but I love at the time the emphasis because at the time I think the commitment to the self was not the first thing that people thought. So can you tell us a little bit why you felt the need to put that on the model? Okay, well, see, and it's interesting. It, between all those commitments I just mentioned, even in this group, if I had to give one of them the lowest score, you know, you can always stack rank any set of things. And and now among these excellent managers, even being ranked in last place, commitment to self, they were still better than most at it. Yet there, if there was a common theme among um, all these managers that we studied was when you talk to the people and get their perspective on the on their leadership and their management, they all love these people. And one of the terms that was came across in a recurring way was, God, they take care of everybody else first. They take care of themselves last. I'm worried about them. I want them to take care of themselves more. So that was actually one of our first, gee, maybe we got to add commitment to yourself there. But remember, it's commitment to yourself as a leader. And, and so what is it that, that, that makes for someone to demonstrate a commitment to self or any of the commitments. First thing is you got to define what commitment is. I mean, people can have, by the way, there's more than one definition of anything. So I'll just describe to you the way we came up with our definition of commitment. Commitment requires, first of all, it requires belief in something, something you care about, like, oh, I'm committed to my family, or I'm committed to my nation, or I'm committed to, to my profession. You know, and by the way, most people are committed to many things, but you have to believe in it to be to show commitment. Then the second thing is you've got to act consistent with that belief. That's the integrity part. But let me just pick a profession: politicians, <laughs> bankers. They can they can talk a good game, yeah, about what they're committed to. But then all of a sudden, you look at their behavior and you go, "Wow, there's a disconnect between what they're saying and what they're actually doing." And see, it, it, true commitment requires consistency with what, what you were coming out of your mouth and what you believe in. So that became the basis of any time we look at any commitment area, that's the, our criteria of saying whether a person has commitment or not. So commitment in a set of values or beliefs that, that people have to believe 
And these leaders, that excellent managers that you are studying, had that commitment and they were showing through that actions uh, the alignment, the integrity that they had right. with it. And the area of growth that you identify that like a little bit the weak spot in the sense that where they could break or um, over get uh, uh, not achieve their potential if they didn't took care of that area of growth is the commitment to their self-care. Well, no, but remember this is just, I does see uh, when I wrote the book, it was trying to organize this even in a clear, more, I guess, simple way, because no matter what our commitment area was when we first put this framework together, there were sort of different things you did, whether it was a commitment to your customer versus, say, commitment to your employees, yet both were important. I was looking for what's the common ground? Is there a common framework to help understand how do you maintain your commitments? And, and what, we, what I came up with was that there, there are sort of like two almost opposite things you do for any area that you're committed to. The first thing, if you're committed to something, you support it. You demonstrate a strong, positive support for what you're committed to. The second thing, though, and, it, and, it, and what triggered in my mind when you were using the word growth, is if you're committed to anything, you're committed to make it better. Cool. You don't just rest on, on your laurels. You know, like, for instance, I'll, I'll, I'll just take a personal thing. I mean, all of my work has been around organizations, whether, whether it's a, a business like you know, the IBM Corporation, or it's a, a a nonprofit like the Red Cross or UNICEF, you know, one of the United Nations things is, but let's just take a personal one. See, for, for a personal commitment, I've been married 53 years. And, and you're not going to stay married for 53 years if you're committed to your marriage, unless you not only support it, you also have to change with the times and improve upon it. And that and that's that's how you maintain commitment. See, all these excellent managers they made their commitments throughout their whole life. It's not like, well, I, I'll do it for some time, then I'll take my foot off the gas. No, it's all the time. Am I supporting what I'm committed to? And am I improving what I'm committed to? Can you give us some examples? First of all, by the way, I got I got this idea of, of support and improvement from a famous memo, although it was lost at the time we went to did this work for IBM, by the son of the founder of IBM, Tom Watson Jr. He sent a memo out to every single leader. This is in the day before today where you can do it so simply. They had actually print out this one-page letter he sent to every leader in IBM, which was you know, 30,000 leaders around the world. It was already a giant company. And they had to put it in the mail and send it to them. The middle of this document had what he considered to be important for leaders, and it was it was four words: challenge up and support down. Ah, challenge up, and I, I, we don't have time today to get into that. But I'm just saying that's where my idea came from. I then broadened the concept slightly to say support and improve. And by the way, in any direction, you support in any direction, up or down or laterally, you improve up, down or laterally. His challenge up was, if you have something to say to help us be a better corporation, challenge management on it. So now, so let me just deal with then the the first order of business. Support, you got to deal with the here and now. Support what you're committed to. Four things make up supporting what you're committed to. First is focus. And when we say focus, focus on what's important. Where a lot of people are seen as, well, I don't think that person is committed, is they have different definitions of what's important. Yeah. 
So if you don't see someone is committed to what you think is important, focusing on what's important, you don't think they have that commitment to it. So that, that's the first order of business. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, I, I was doing volunteer work for the Canadian Red Cross, and I work with all the senior team of the Canadian Red Cross and, and as a volunteer, and I spent a lot of time with them. And then George Weber, who was the secretary general, which is the top position in the Canadian Red Cross, he gets promoted to run the International Federation. Now, the International Federation is the organizational body that, that oversees every country's Red Cross function. So that's either like in, in uh, I mean, you, you grew up in Portugal, right? Yes, correct. Okay, well, see, Portugal would have a Red Cross. Yep. But if you were in, in uh, Indonesia, it would be a Red Crescent Society because you're Muslim. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference between, you know, you know the, the cross kind of has a Christian bent to it. So he was in charge of 191 countries. Wow. And and I was going over in his first years, he was there in the role. In, and I went to Geneva, where their headquarters are. And, and I did a training program. At the end of the training program, we went out to dinner. And I was going to fly back to Los Angeles, where I lived at the time, the next morning. So we're out in this little bistro in Geneva. It's getting late in the evening. We're sitting outside at a little table for two, and the place is deserted outside. There's nobody up in the street. And so I always like to ask leaders, because from my research on leadership and commitment, I said, what's most important to you, George? Now, I'm sitting there thinking, most leaders I've asked the question, they actually give their answer similar to, I would love to be like something like the Red Cross. I mean, what is the Red Cross mission? Help the most vulnerable, Right. And and so the, you know they, they I mean they're out to do, they're doing good for society, and now George's already the leader of that. Yeah. So I'm I'm anxious to see what he's going to say. He was reflective to answer the question. He says, "Well, I, I can answer that question, Frank, in two words." Ooh, I'm looking forward to this. What are the two words? He says, "My health." I said, well, "Focus on what is most important to you." He said, "My health." And I said, "Okay, say more, George." He said, "He said, well, the reason for that is is that." If I'm going to do my job and, you know, we are really trying to prevent and alleviate human suffering, I, I can't do that if I'm not healthy. So he made a commitment. And by the way, he, I'd been with George many times before this meeting, and we used to run in the morning before a meeting. I mean, he, he kept himself in shape on that thing. He took the time because that's what's important. He says, if my health suffers, I won't do my job. So that was almost is like the put oxygen mask first to be able to help others that they say when we are in the aeroplane before that was the, the, the thing that everybody says. We are like the tool. And in many ways has to do if we think about high performance at the core is that you have to take care. You, if we are the tool, if we don't take care of us, who is going to do it? Right, right. So, so again, now remember, what is important is different from each commitment area. Yet, see, now here's a guy that actually combined both commitment to self with commitment to his organization and their mission and their customer base, who they, who they were serving. Now, the, the second thing is, and by this is, remember, part of what's commitment, having you know, belief, having beliefs in something, then acting consistent with it. So the, the second part of, of commitment is, is leading by example. So are you leading by example about what's important? Now, I'll use an example. This is sometimes I take examples from people I never met. Don't know. This one is a guy I never met. His name is Gandhi. Gandhi, <laughs> right? Mahatma Gandhi. Now, apparently, he already had this title, so it had to have been later in his life. I heard this story about him. People, you know, just adored him. 
So, so there was a long list of people coming to see him and, and there's a lineup and, and there's one lady comes up with her young son and she says, you know, Mahatma, please do me a favor. Tell my son to stop eating sugar. This was his response to her. He just looked her right in the eye and he said, come back in two weeks. Just as I said, come back in two weeks. And she kind of go like, what? So she has to leave the line. And then, and then, um, but you know what? She says, I'm going to do what he said. So she waits two weeks with her son. Two weeks go by. She comes up. She's in line, comes up to him. He looks right at her, smiles, looks at her son and says, stop eating sugar. Now, she's very happy, but she's perplexed. She goes, why couldn't you have just said this two weeks ago? I could have taken my son home, right? He goes, two weeks ago, I ate sugar. So, you know, I mean, it's not what your words that matter. It's your actions that matter. So, you know, here's a guy leading by example. I'm not going to tell anyone else to stop eating sugar if I eat sugar, right? So, so the thing is, how connected is your behavior to what's important? And I see a lot of people that I think are committed leaders, but there's a disconnect between what they're doing connected, what they think is important, what other people think are important. So a good leader makes sure there's a common understanding of what we're doing and why it's important and what and what, what's important. So because see, the first order of being a good leader is your personal example, but then you got to get other people to choose to join you. Yeah. Right. So because they show personal commitment and they get much more, the excellent managers got much more commitment out of other people in the same organization that they looked at. So, so the first two things are focus on what's important, lead by example. The third thing is rewarding success. Now, again, I've been in the field of leadership for, for my, my whole career. I can always understand what's going on in any situation by looking at one thing, the reward system. Hmm. What's getting rewarded? What's not getting rewarded? Right? Okay. Tell so, more. So, okay. Well, I'll give you a personal example. Ken Blanchard, who wrote the first four of my books. See, I probably wouldn't have written this book if it wasn't for Ken Blanchard. He had, at the time after, I mean, I've written this book in the late 1980s. He had already published this groundbreaking book that, I mean, unbelievable book called, called um, uh, The One Minute Manager. And I wanted to emulate him. And I, and I knew Ken, and he was a mentor to me at that point in time. So he said, Frank, write a page a day. Just keep writing a page a day. You know, you'll get to the finish line. Well, but before, now I go back in time. Ken was doing his research for the one minute manager. And one of his one minutes is one minute praising in his book. So, but he's, he just one day comes up to me and says, Frank, I'm doing research for a book. Could I ask you a couple of questions? I said, sure, Ken. I mean, Ken was such a great guy. He says, okay, I want to ask some questions about rewards. Now we all fly a lot at the center for leadership studies. I was working in his organization and, and uh, he said, you're on a plane and a flight attendant goes out of his or her way to make your flight, you know, enjoyable. Are you likely to recognize that flight attendant? I'm sitting there going, I'm such a frequent flyer in American Airlines. I get these little chits, and I can give a chit to a flight attendant if they're doing a good job. I I, I, I go through mine all the time. I said, and so my answer to Ken was, would you would you basically give some recognition? I'd say absolutely. I immediately said to him, absolutely. He says, and he's got a little clipboard. He write down. That's good. He says, now Frank, I got a second question for you. We have a great staff that works for us. And someone does a, you know, goes a little bit out of the way to get up, you know, something proposal out for you and goes out. Are you likely to recognize her? Because they're all women that work in our state. And I sat there and I was thinking about it. And you know what I went through? I can still remember what went through my mind. I said, I actually think I'm better than everybody else in the office. <laughs> all the other kind of, uh, not that they were bad. I'm just saying, I think I do it the better. So I said, yeah, most of the time. He, Thank you, Frank, takes his note. 
Now, he asked me, he says, Frank, I only got one more question. I'm feeling really good. One more question. Now, you have a young son. Like, my son is 51 years old right now. If he was a little kid, and you always, he said, you always complain about how messy he is. He doesn't pick up his clothes, you know, and all that kind of stuff. His floors covered with stuff, toys and everything. He says, if your son, like, picks up one of his clothes, piece of article of clothing or, is it, are you, or a toy, are you likely to recognize him? And I'm sitting there thinking, you know what I was thinking about? Because I was silent. I was trying to remember if I had ever done it. Wow. Now, I never opened my mouth. And Ken says, thank you, Frank. I got my third <laughs> answer. I'm going, what? I mean, I, if I ever got <laughs> mad at Ken Blanchard, this one time. And, and he said, you are very consistent with my research. Now I'm feeling really, oh, I'm consistent with his research, right? He goes, it's interesting. The person who's a total stranger to you, you are absolutely going to reward them. The person who's, you know, important to us, you know, our staff in our office, you're most likely to do it, but not absolutely doing it. And your son, you're struggling to find one example. Wow. I'm sitting there going, guilty, guilty, guilty. He says, this is what's consistent about our research. We have a tendency to reward the people that are more psychologically distant from us than the people that are closest than the, the people that are closest to us. So you know what? I I kissed the ground he walked on. Wow. I devoted the rest of my life to making sure I was doing as good a job with my family as I was with everybody else. So the first question about rewarding success is who are you rewarding? Are you ignoring your stars as a leader because they don't need it? You know, they're they're so <laughs> successful. Who are you rewarding? And then, and then what are you rewarding them? Because, because um, I was working with Wells Fargo Bank. This is now after I actually, you know, was in the process of writing the book. And, and uh, every person in the bank had gotten a $500 bonus, which because they had a great year. They also got one other thing, which is really interesting. And I, I asked later on, did they do this all the time? He says, no, it was an experiment. Everyone got a little piece of like a chit, a $35 chit. And they said, and their job was to give it to the person who most helped them have a good year. Wow. So, so, so now I'm working for this part of this bank and I go around and I'm talking to people and I ask them, Hey, how was, I hear you got a bonus last year, 500 bucks. How was that? Oh, loved it. Fantastic. I says, uh, there's also this chit thing. I said, who did you give your chit to? Now, I didn't ask them if they got a chit because everybody's not going to get a chit. That'd be embarrassing. So when I, once I find who they gave a chit to, whenever I talk to that person, I'd say, I'd ask them the same question. The bonus, hey, $500, great. Um, then I would say, well, did you also, did you, did you get a chit? No, I'm, I'm asking a question I know the answer to. Yes. And they go, well, yeah, I got it. I said, this is my key question. Which meant more to you? You know what it was? The chit. The, the $35 recognition. Yeah, from a peer. So the thing is, is, it's both who you're rewarding and how you reward. But see, a good leader is very good at using rewards. And, 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 me and meaningful rewards. It's, I'm yeah. seeing you. Yeah. Now the, yeah. And now the last thing, and we actually frame it as the negative, is managing disrespect. See, if you're, fo if you're supporting something, you'll focus on what's important. You'll lead by example. You reward success. And, and you manage disrespect. Perfect example. Um, people will say I'm a patriot. You know, I, I'm I'm proud of my country. Well, you know, if if if, if you're walking down the street with your kids and you talk about the importance of a, what a, what a wonderful country we have and what we get from our country, I'm, I don't care what country we're talking about, right? And you see someone burning the, the flag of the nation. Mm -hmm. 
right? Showing disrespect to the flag of your nation. What are you going to do? If you walk by, what do you tell your kids? Uh, is he really a patriot? Patriotic or not? Now, my advice would be go up to that person and say, I see you're burning our flag. I'm assuming you're not proud of this country. Yeah, well, you know, and, and, and then say, if you really want to get out of here, I'll buy you a one-way ticket, right? Go to the country that you're really proud of. I'll help you out. Now, that, that would show I'm patriotic. Now, when Osama bin Laden was the, apparently the, at least the money behind, you know, taking Boeing airplanes and turning to weapons of mass destruction, I could not believe how much flag waving took place in the United States. You just saw, I wish I've had smart, I would have gotten a flag franchise and I would have made a ton of money. Now, I had to, they'd cut all air fines. I had to, I had to go a thousand miles to UCLA to teach. I had to drive my car. I wanted to put a flag on it. By this time, they did, I couldn't even get those little, this is right around, I get those little flags that you could put on your waving. So I printed out three copies in color from my printer of an American flag and I taped them on the back windscreen of my car. And, and when I was driving down, I could not believe, I could not drive under an overpass in a thousand miles without people on their flags, people tooting their horns. I mean, the, the amazing patriotism. Well, how long did that last? But you know what? On that drive down, I made a little vow to myself. My flags are coming off that car when they catch Osama bin Laden. Ten years. The ink on that stuff got pretty faded ten years. But, you know, I ceremoniously took that off the day they caught Osama bin Laden. Wow. So are you a patriot when, when it's good times to be a patriot? Or are you a patriot when? So, you know, what are you doing to build respect, manage disrespect? If you do those four things, you're showing support. Now, we don't yeah. got much time left, but I will yeah. say, what's the flip side? Improving. You, you don't just rest on your laurels. So, you know, if you're going to really improve something, what do you what do you do? My favorite car I ever owned was a Porsche. Now, I, did, I couldn't buy a Porsche when I was a young man. But I always wanted to. So when I finally got my Porsche in 1980, I, it was a used one, but it was rebuilt by three German mechanics in West Los Angeles. They were good friends at, at that point in time. Loved my car. So I read about the company. And I realized there was actually named after the founder, a guy named Professor Portia. And there was a story about the professor, which I loved. About, this is about looking for a better way. This is a guy that was just about the end of his career, had a very fabulous car company. And he was taking a bunch of dignitaries around their, their you know, headquarters in Stuttgart. And they had like cars like over there all around their history of their cars. And one guy asked him, Professor, which of all these great lines of Porsches is your personal favorite? His answer, I haven't built it yet. <laughs> and this guy was just about ready to retire. See, and by the way, 911, which is my car, you know why that's called a 911? The guy had a little book that he would make, make notes in. And he came up with the idea of the 911 on page 911, of, of, of page number 911 in this book. So this guy had gotten through already 900 pages of doodling about what's the future of Porsche. So that's that shows you a person who's committed. Yeah. And they'd never retire in terms of that. By the way, remember I said it, 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 the humility side is all the great leaders, the, the managers that we studied, not one of them said, well, I'm a great manager because of me. They surround themselves with smarter people themselves, learn from others. And Duff Severe, who's another guy like Gandhi, I never met Duff Severe, but I saw an article written about him. He was he builds Western saddles in the United States. He fought for the in World War II for the Western side, and he grew up in the West. 
And, and when he survived and didn't die in battle, he came home and he, he made a pilgrimage to Pendleton, Oregon. And Pendleton, Oregon was the Hamley saddle shop. They were they were like the mecca of Western saddles. He wanted to build Western saddles. He walks into this place, and old Hamley looks at him and, and he says, I want to work for you, sir. And he still got looks like he was in the Marines. And, he's, and this is what Hamley said, son, you know, if you're going to come work for me, the apprenticeship is four years long. Are you up for it, kid? He said, yes, sir. He stayed 10 years. Wow. And he said, and this is what he said, I learned something every day for 10 years, learning from others. Now, by the way, this article is being written because Duff Severe had taken over as the best saddle maker in the West. And by the way, the Smithsonian, National Geographic, and Ronald Reagan, who was president of the United States, only they all said the same thing, best saddle maker. And this guy was an apprentice for 10 years before he started making his own saddles learn from others. He's a really great example. Yeah, so so we got to continue doing that, challenging expectations. I'll give you a quick example. Edward de Bono, you know, one of the top leaders in the area of creativity, he put me through the ringer once. He says, okay, you got something you're doing and it works 90% of the time. 10% of it doesn't work. Where do you look for a better way? Remember, looking for a better way is part of our model. But where do you look for a better way? At the 90%, the stuff you're perfectly happy with or the stuff that's causing you problems. I'm saying to myself saying, I've spent 100% of my time looking for a better way with, with what I'm dissatisfied with, not what I'm satisfied with. He said, that's pretty common. Why not spend some time looking at what you're perfectly happy with? Well, that's a challenge of expectations. He gave an example of a guy in England, because he's British, who was perfectly, he did the same thing with him. He was perfectly happy with the way they their manufacturing operation worked. By the way, they were in the frozen fish fillet business. He decided to take him up and challenge his own expectations. Let's spend some time looking at what we're perfectly happy with. How we get the fit, how we separate the bones and the get the fish ready to be freeze fried and free or freeze frozen and put into packages and sold in supermarkets. Well, I'm, I, I can't remember the story, but let's just say the way they did is they they separated the bones from the flesh. They decided, well, what if we separated the flesh from the bones? I'm kind of going, is there a difference? Well, guess what? There was a difference. They changed their whole production based upon this little experiment. And he, the guy was making almost a million dollars more a year. Wow. Small shift. Yeah. So the thing is, it's challenging. And the final thing, the hardest of all, risk-making changes. Are you willing to take risks to make changes? I love it. And I love how you did in the book that you go over this framework with a fable that makes it very enjoyable to read. But now from our conversation that I appreciate so much, I think my challenge is look to this. How can I apply this to myself, to my self-leadership? The thing is, is you know, again, from my good friend, Marshall Goldsmith, who, by the way, didn't invent this thing, is one of the best ways is using a daily checklist. You, first of all, be, be clear on yourself of what am I committed to? And you get to choose. No one else has to choose this for you right? You choose what's important. What are my important commitments? And then you ask yourself, am I focusing on what's, what's important today? How is my personal example? You know, if I want other people are involved with me on this and who am I rewarding? Am I rewarding people for the right things? And then finally, you know, am I building respect for it? And if people, anyone showing disrespect for what I'm committed to, will I stand up to them in a positive way? Not a disrespect way, but I'll stand up to them. Then ask yourself, you know, where am I looking for a better way? Who can I learn from? First of all, you always got to challenge your own expectations first, right? And then challenge others. When have I done that lately? And then finally, what risks am I taking? And you only know if you're taking risks if you're failing. 
<laughs> that is the tough one. Yep. No, no one say, oh, I take a lot of risk, but gee, weird. I've succeeded every time I've done it. So are, what's your tolerance for failure? Wow. Uh, you leave me here speechless, but uh, okay, <laughs> people, I will make sure that in the show notes, I will put the link for the book, but where do people can learn more about you? I don't really have all these social media things. Of, but you, know, you, the, have a, you have a, a LinkedIn profile. Well, well yeah, well, you know, I guess you go to if you go to LinkedIn, type Frank Wagner in there, I think you get, you'll 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 eventually find me. Um, you know, and my I got a pretty simple email address. It's coach.frank at gmail.com. Just lowercase coach.frank at gmail.com. That's where I go by. And thank you, thank you. This is um, a lot of things to reflect uh, and inspiring. And I really appreciate the time that you give us today. Oh, you're more than welcome. You know, I love, like I say, I'll end how I began. Anytime I have time to spend with Anna Malikian, it's a good day. Thank you. You're welcome. Expanding possibilities, the mindset zone. Thank you for listening. And remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. As always, I'm so grateful you are here. Expand what's possible for you, for the ones around you, for the world.